This is episode 32 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are, Warning, Do You Recognize These Five Common Piles of Prepper BS? Teaching Situational Awareness to Kids and Companion Plants in the Garden, What You Plant Where Matters. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Let's go ahead and get started. Our first article comes to us from the survivalistblog.net. That's MD Creekmore over there. And again, the title of the article is Warning, Do You Recognize These Five Common Piles of Prepper BS? And so let's go ahead and get right into this one. First one is the Golden Horde. The Golden Horde theory has been portrayed for years by survival authors, bloggers, and fiction writers. But will the Golden Horde of hopeless refugees swarm like hundreds of thousands of locusts from the cities to the countryside after an economic collapse? No, they won't. Not after an economic collapse anyways. In fact, I look for the opposite to happen. With hordes of people packing it up and leaving rural areas for the cities to look for work when things settle down and after the initial riots that will occur in some areas. Recent examples of this happening after an economic collapse include present-day Greece, Argentina, 1998-2002, the former USSR in the 1990s, New Zealand in the 1980s, and the U.S. Great Depression of the 1930s. In all of these examples given above, none saw a huge influx of refugees fleeing the cities to the country, but the opposite reaction with people leaving the rural areas for the cities in hopes of finding work. You can't believe everything some self-proclaimed survival expert told you in his fiction novel. Look at history as an example instead. History offers much more realistic examples of how events will unfold in the real world than do the fantasies of some delusional fiction author. In fact, I don't see the Golden Horde heading toward the countryside at all unless the disaster is localized to the urban area that they are fleeing from, such as after Katrina. Most of the supposed hordes will die or be killed in place waiting on the government to come in and rescue them before they would head out for the countryside. Yes, there will be some people who will leave the cities to try farming in the rural areas. There will also be people living, leaving the rural areas for the city in hopes of finding work. But after such an event, the cities will not empty into the countryside as you have been told. In the long term, after an economic collapse, there will be roving gangs of armed survivors from the cities that will make trips into the surrounding countryside to raid homes, farms, and other sources for supplies but it will not be the horde of hundreds of thousands that is foreseen by many in the survival prepper community. Those most at risk by, of attacks by the type of raiders will be those living within 50 miles of major population areas, but the further you are away from those areas, the lower your risk will be. There is also a good possibility that the federal government will take resources from rural areas food, for example, and redistribute those resources to urban areas after an economic collapse, a new form of welfare. So why would they want to come and take it when the federal government will do it for them? I do, not, I do know that any and all government resources will be put towards helping urban areas after such an event. As I've said before, an economic collapse does not mean a government collapse. 
those in power will only tighten the screws and take from you to redistribute to the cities. So that's uh, that's one also. I know that I've referenced uh, Fernando Aguirre a lot uh, because of his experience in Argentina and his book, uh, the um, Surviving the Economic Collapse. And so uh, that that's one thing that he did say. So when help does come, it does come to the major cities. It's not going to go out into the rural areas. And uh, so I uh, do agree with that one. All right, so continuing on, uh, ROL, or W-R-O-L, World Without, I'm sorry, Without the Rule of Law. So without the rule of law, this is another one of those events, like the Golden Horde Theory, that survival writers have promoted for years, but does it have merit in the real world? Well, the answer is yes and no. Let me explain. After a major disaster, there, there very well may be a period of time without the rule of law, but unlike what has been portrayed in the pages of countless survival fiction books and movies, it will in all likelihood be a short-term and localized event. You see, most people want law and order and will work together to achieve that end. Crime will no doubt increase after an economic collapse and most other disasters, with home invasions, robbery, murder, kidnapping, and rape being all too common. But such offenses will still be against the law, both legally and morally, and people will demand that the perpetrators be apprehended and justice served, even if that justice is via the rule and judgment of a local warlord or governor and a public stoning in the street. Shoot first. This ties in with the concept of rule or without the rule of law mentioned above and is where the majority of preppers seem to be confused and trigger happy. We've all heard, read, and contemplated it, but is the shoot first crowd being realistic or simply feeding their rainbow fantasies with visions of using uncontrolled and unaccounted for deadly force on their neighbors or anyone else that comes within 1,000 yards of their retreat after the balloon goes up? Listen, in all but the most extreme circumstances of total and long-term collapse and anarchy, example equals full-blown civil war, the laws and punishments for the unjustifiable taking of a human life will still apply and will be enforced, even if that punishment is your public execution in the street. You will not be able to kill your neighbor because he looked at your wife with lust in his eyes or trespassed on your property without there being repercussions brought against you. My advice is to study up on the laws regarding self-defense in your state and also have non-lethal means of protecting yourself, such as defensive spray, ex extendable baton, taser, beanbag grounds, etc. It's also a good idea to be friends with your local sheriff and as many of his deputies as possible. Remember, they write the reports, just hope that it was not one of their family or friends that you shoot. A good shovel also might be a good idea, you know, just in case that you let things get out of hand. Those that are unjustifiable lethal forces against another person will be held accountable if caught. No matter how bad the economy gets or how deep and far reaching the crash, to think otherwise is a sure way of ending up in jail or worse. I remember uh, reading about uh, Selco. At, at, I think his website was shtfschool.com, I, I think, if I remember correctly. haven't seen too much out of him lately. But that's one thing that he did talk about, you know, the war in, in Bosnia. And I believe he was in Sarajevo that, um, you know, when things were going down, you had people doing all kinds of bad stuff. But when, when law and order were restored, then those people had to, you know... Uh, they were brought to justice and they had to pay a price. So, uh, you know, good, good thought there. All right, continuing on. Bugging out to the woods. 
If you read my article, Bugging Out versus Hunkering Down, then you already know that I'm not a big fan of the bugging out theory in general and planning to bug out to the woods to hide and wait out a disaster it is suicidal for most. Come on, let's be realistic. Could you live in the woods with no outside support for four to six years? Would you be safer roaming the backwoods than if you stayed home where you are stocked up and can blend in with everyone else? Planning to leave the familiarity and security of your home to bug out to the woods isn't very smart. In nearly every instance, it's better to hunker down or bug in than to bug out. I mean, why leave the safety and familiar surroundings of your home for the open and unforgiving wilderness? You need to weigh the risk of bugging out versus hunkering down and make your final decision based on logic and type of threats that you face. That's the way decisions should be made. Unfortunately, many people when making plans for survival side with emotion instead of the tried and true form of decision making known as logic. Relying on emotion instead of logic can make for some interesting adventures. However, without sound planning beforehand, those adventures are likely to be sort short-lived, I believe it was supposed to say that. For example, I recently asked a fellow in his late 30s what he would do if disaster struck his area. He thought for a moment and said he would gather his family and all the food, guns, and ammunition he could find and head for the mountains that lay some 75 miles to the north of his home. Depending on the type of disaster, his plan might work short-term for a lone survivor or a small group of trained individuals in good physical condition with proper gear and mindset. But he is a new father and his wife is one of those that think missing an appointment at the nail salon is the end of the world as she knows it. Making matters worse, he has no outdoor survival training or skills other than watching reruns of Les Stroud's Survivor Man and camping at a national park campground with all the utilities and hookups. Why he thinks he can survive long term for the wilderness while dragging his family along, I don't know. He isn't thinking logically. Being squared away in the wilderness... Some survival writers suggest relocating as far away from others as possible. This is what I call the cabin in the woods survival philosophy. Living in the backwoods is great now, but in the aftermath of a long-term disaster or economic collapse, those squared away in the wilderness will become targets. And guess what? You'll be on your own. No one will come to your rescue. If the looters manage to take control of your isolated cabin in the woods, they can stay for as long as they want and do whatever they want to you and your family and no one will hear your screams for help. Robbers, thieves, rapists, and murderers will seek out isolated retreats because of their isolation. I know this goes against what some other self-appointed survival guru has reportedly told his readers, but recent history and common sense prove that I'm right. Armed and organized home invasions will be a constant threat for isolated families. One lone gunman could easily take out an isolated family from a distance or even selectively pick off all of the male inhabitants while saving the females for his own pleasure. I've lived in an isolated area where my closest neighbors were well over a mile away and the peace and quiet are great. I love the isolation but even then I constantly worried about thieves breaking in and stealing my stuff every time that I left the house to go to town or visit my family. And this was during good times. Now imagine how quickly things would deteriorate in the aftermath of an economic collapse or other major disaster. So what do I suggest you do? I suggest that you find a small town or community and move there if possible. Get to know your neighbors and become part of the community. If possible, purchase from 5 to 10 acres of property and set up a mini farm homestead. Avoid going into debt if possible. This will give you the best of both worlds. You can have privacy and still be self-reliant on your own land while still being close enough 
neighbors to avoid becoming an easy target and you can get help if you need it. For example, my home retreat homestead mini farm or whatever you want to call it, I call it the last stand, is five and a half acres with my closest neighbor being 190 yards to the left and 230 yards to the right and about 300 yards in front to the rear. There is nothing but forest that consists or connects to national forest land. My neighbors are far enough away and through the trees that I have plenty of privacy, but they are still close enough that we can help each other if needed. CB radios are great for this. If each neighbor has one, you can provide them if needed. You can work out an agreement to keep the radios turned on and monitored and to quickly come to the aid of your neighbor should they need, need for help. Well, there you have it, the five most common piles of prepper BS. And, of course, one of the good things about uh, visiting MD's uh, website is he's got a big community over there, so there's a lot of comments. I think there's over uh, 300 comments on this one article. So definitely want to go check it out. A lot of good points there to consider. Um, ultimately, you got to do what you feel you know you feel comfortable with. But uh, a lot of good points there. Um, you know, one thing that I will say, um, there was an evacuation from uh, Houston when we had um, we thought Hurricane or right after Hurricane Katrina, we saw all the craziness of that. Uh, Hurricane Rita was supposed to be a direct hit to Galveston, Texas, and then come right up 45 and hit Houston. And so I guess Katrina was so fresh on everybody's mind that everybody kind of panicked with Rita and and, and wound up uh, uh, leaving. And so the freeways were packed. Uh, it's it's so sad. People died on the side of the road. There was, there was uh, vans of special need kids, special need uh, adults that wanted up you know getting you know in their vans and they were trying to go to safety and they wound up you know in their vans and and because it was so um uh jam packed and traffic jams everywhere uh that uh, they want they wound up uh burning all their gas and then they wound up dying in the heat and so and that's just it's just terrible uh, i did have uh, you know my wife and i used to run a a group home for kids in cps custody and one of our old foster daughters was with uh, with an aunt and they did get out, and she said it took them forever, forever to get out. And and even uh, there's there were still talk of people, you know, going out in all the little convenience stores. They were just raided from with food. You know, they were raided, not raided like uh, you know people were going in there and taking stuff, but raided as far as uh, they were just bought out of all their inventory because people were going in there and, and and buying all their candy and all their food and all their water and everything because they were on the road and just you know they couldn't move. So that was a situation where everyone was leaving a certain localized event like MD was talking about, moving away from this localized event to go out. Um, those that didn't, you know, we, we weren't leaving. We stayed behind and we were glad that we did. But uh, a lot of good points there. Go check that out at the survivalistblog.net. Like always, I will link to the Survivalist blog on episode 32 on the show notes. All right, moving right along, we're at Preparedness Mom and Shelley's. Uh, has a, a article there for us on teaching situational awareness to kids. And so I know that this is a good article for those of you who are parents, but then those of you that are grandparents, because I know some of you, there's a lot of you out there that are grandparents, you take care of your kids, and this is a little game. I mean, when you when you say, hey, let's play a game, and, and you pull, put it off that way, because that's what we're going to be talking about, um, it, it makes a big, big difference, right? So let's go ahead and get started on this one here. Uh, looking at Preparedness Mama, 
And the article is Teaching Situational Awareness to Kids. Being married to a soldier changes how you view the world, especially if you have a spouse who has served overseas and in combat. They struggle with crowded or confusing places and react to seemingly normal situations in unusual ways. The main reason for this isn't what most people believe it is. As I've met and talked with soldiers in law enforcement, I've noticed that they all have the same reaction to these things. Situational awareness is being aware of your surroundings, the place you're at, the actions of others, especially furtive actions. In a world of increasing violence and crime, being aware serves many purposes. Protection, the uh, oblivious are a favorite victim of criminals. Warning, you'll see dangers before it starts so you can react accordingly to save your own life and or others. Information, you'll you'll be able to accurately recall vital information in the case of a crime or threat to give police. So, as one soldier explained to another, there's nothing wrong with you, it's them. Most soldiers tend to view our blissful innocence as a negligence. They have their eyes open to the dangers of the world. Children, to the exasperation of most parents, are especially unaware, often risking their lives because of it. We teach them to be aware of vehicles before crossing the road and stranger danger, but in today's world, we need to teach them more. This can be, a tr- this can be tricky without making them afraid of the entire world. My husband was listening to Lars Larson on the radio, and they shared this idea to teach children during the show. He immediately began doing this game with our kids, at least whenever he's out, with, out and about with them. I'll admit, I'm super distracted at the store as my awareness is wrapped up in keeping all hands, feet, and other objects in the cart and trying to remember what's on my list that I left at home. It has made me more aware of my surroundings as I'm running errands. Once you start playing the game, you'll realize you are blissfully unaware as well. Begin by asking your kids questions after leaving a store. Ask about people, the location of exits, displays, and what was going on in the store while you were there. It's important to vary the questions so they don't know exactly what you'll ask. You want them to become aware and not how to focus on what they think we want to hear. These are just general guidelines to give you an idea. You'll find this activity is just as challenging for adults as for children. We are blissfully unaware of our surrounding or simply distracted much more than we realize. These are just general guidelines to give you an idea. You'll find this activity is just as challenging for adults as for children. I think that was uh, maybe a sentence that was copied and pasted or at least uh, yeah, pasted too many times. All right, so level one, place awareness. Where were these are questions that you can ask. Where were the bathrooms? Where were the exits? Was there an entrance and an exit? Where is blank aisle? Choose something beside toys. They always know where that is. Where was the kitchen? Uh, waiters prep area. Where did we park? Which entrance did we come in at? Left through. Where would you seek safety if there was an earthquake? Once they can answer these questions with ease and accuracy with each store, restaurant, or building, you'll know they've been trained to look for, trained to look for at their surroundings. At this point, it's becoming natural, and you can challenge them to see more than just the place. Be sure to continue with some of the level one questions. So these are level two: people awareness. What was the cashier wearing? Do the employees have a uniform? If so, what it, what is it? What color hair did the waitress have? Was the cashier wearing glasses? Was the person on the bench outside the bathroom a boy or girl? 
What did he look like? Or what did they look like? Sorry. What were they wearing? What was the greeter's name? Requirements for level 3 are the same as level 2. And now you'll ask questions from both level 1 and 2. You just won't have to ask as many of them. You'll just need to make sure their awareness is expanded, not just shifting. Level 3, uh, thing awareness. What stickers were on the cashier's name tag? What was displayed by the entrance? Describe the wallpaper in the bathroom. What food was on the aisle we walked down to get to the milk? What color and type of car did we park next to when we got here? Describe your favorite picture displayed in the restaurant. What food did I have trouble deciding to purchase? Eventually, you'll be able to start really stretching your abilities and theirs. They will begin to notice the usual and mundane around them. The ultimate goal is to become aware and where you, we are, where we are going, and who and what is around us. Teaching situational awareness can be life-saving to your children. What are the first questions you will ask your kids about their surroundings? So, uh, a good game to play. You know, one of the things I was thinking of, of when I was reading is, you know, you can assign points to level 1, level 2, level 3, uh, different varied points. And, you know, your kids can, if you have more than, than one kid, they can... Uh, uh, you know, rack up the points that way, and and maybe they might not get one of them, but they might get another one and be able to get some points there. But uh, it's it's a good point, especially now with how everyone is, you know, have their eyes and their head just buried into their phone, just walking, you know, walking in parking lots and everything else. So uh, neat little game to play uh, out there with friends, uh, or I'm sorry, with your kids, but even with friends, that that would be something uh, uh, to do, as, as, even as a couple. All right. So let's get to our last uh, article of the of the day. Um, this one comes to us from Old World Farms Garden. Uh, it comes, uh, or the the name of the article is "Companion Plants in the Garden: What You Plant Where Matters." And this is uh, I'm, I'm on gardening right now, um, and I, I think a lot of you are as well. If you're listening to this, you know gardening is is one of the things that we do. And so hopefully you're you're able to get some things into the ground and you're able to uh, you know start seeing that or you are definitely you are preparing. So let's go ahead and get into this one because this is a, this is a good one, one to always uh, always keep in mind and I'm I'm glad I've done some of these things uh, already for my garden this this uh, this year. All right, so when it comes to companion plants, what you plant where where in your vegetable garden can have a big impact on its overall success. As you plan out your garden layout, it's important to take into consideration the relationships that plants have when grown beside each other. The key is knowing which are beneficial and which can actually be detrimental. Companion plants are not a new concept at all. In fact, they have been around for centuries. One of the most widely known companion plantings of all time is called the Three Sisters. Its origin dates to the Iroquois and it is the it is the practice of planting corn, beans, and squash together. The Iroquois uh, knew the trio grew in perfect harmony and used the planting method as a way to increase yields. Okay, so I'm saying the uh, Iroquois, and I'm, I can't remember if I'm saying that right, but I don't know. I'm having flashbacks of the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, so I know. So um, I might just be just confusing all my letters and all my names and everything. Uh, Uruguay, I think that's right. But anyway, maybe maybe somebody can help me out uh, with <laughs> with that one. 
continuing on, the beans fix the nitrogen in the soil, which corn needs and used used to thrive. The corn then provides a natural trellis system for the beans to grow on. Vice versa, the bean vines provide extra strength to the corn stalks to prevent them from blowing over in the wind. All the while, the squash act as a living mulch on the soil. They help to hold in moisture and repel weeds. They also make it hard for animals like raccoons to find their way to get at the corn. It's a beautiful, perfect example of companion plants working in perfect harmony. The good. Like the Three Sisters example, many plants benefit from the nutrients provided to the soil from their companion plants. Other plants provide support or shade for a different variety grown in close proximity, like leaf lettuce grown around tomatoes. Other plants benefit because companion plants help keep pests away. Nasturtiums and marigolds are great for helping to repeal repel I'm sorry and eliminate a whole host of pests many gardeners use them as a border plant uh, around the vegetable garden it provides beauty and protection sorry I didn't turn off my email and so I got email popping up all over the place and so I'm just going to turn that off just really quick the bad some plants can work the other way and hurt the growth of nearby vegetable plants a great example of this are cucumbers cucumbers are never a good choice to plant beside tomatoes or potatoes they simply do not, they do not, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what, they simply do not being next to the nightshade, maybe it's like being like next to the nightshade family of, of plants. For one, both tomato and potatoes can bring in the pests that love to attack cucumber vines. Beans, on the other hand, do not do well around onions or garlic. Companion plants in the vegetable garden, the basics. So with that said, what you plant where really can matter. There are all kinds of guides available when it comes to companion plants. But here are a few of the basic ones to consider when planting your garden. If you want more on the subject, here are two great reads. Companion Planting, The Beginner's Guide to Companion Gardening, and The Complete Guide to Companion uh, Planting. So tomatoes. And those are, I'm sorry, those are links uh, to Amazon for books, and that might be uh, definitely some good books to consider there. Uh, so starting out, tomatoes. Tomatoes do well when planted around cabbage, carrot, basil, and onion, and garlic, but keep away keep them away from potatoes and cucumbers. In addition, do not plant near the root zone of walnut trees. Peppers. Peppers do well with tomatoes, cabbage, carrots, and onions. Avoid planting near potatoes. Cucumbers. Plant near beans, corn, and radishes. The corn works really well as it provides some shade protection for the cucumbers and allows for the vines to grow up and have support. Avoid planting cucumbers around potatoes. They can encourage a blight in potato crop. Potatoes. Plant near beans, cabbage, corn, peas, squash, and eggplant. Avoid cucumbers, pumpkins, peppers, and tomatoes. Peas. Plant peas with corn. Carrots, celery, cucumbers, radishes, tomatoes, and turnips. Avoid planting with onions, garlic, and shallots. Beans. Plant near corn, cucumbers, potatoes, and cabbage. Corn is the best. The two really help each other. Avoid planting beans near garlic, onions, or shallots. Broccoli. Plant near beans, carrots, cucumbers, and lettuce. Avoid planting near peppers and tomatoes. Garlic. Plant garlic near tomatoes and cabbage. Avoid planting near peas and beans. Onions. Plant near beets, cabbage, carrots, and lettuce. Avoid planting near beans and peas. Uh, 
Happy planting, Jim and Mary. If you would like to receive our DIY gardening and recipe articles each week, you can sign up to follow the blog via email in the right-hand column above, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. The article may contain affiliate links. All right, so uh, good article there and a lot of things to consider as you are getting your guard up and ready for um, get, getting ready to produce this uh, this year, this season. And so I think that wraps it up for episode 32 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, like always, I'm, I'm asking you to go check out these articles and you can easily link to them uh, from episode 32 show notes and you can go and check them out. They always have you know, links that uh, you can't really see when I'm reading them, but they have links and, and pictures and all, you know, sometimes videos. You definitely want to go check those out. And also, uh, you know, I don't read the comments a lot of the times, but there's there's always comments usually that uh, provide a lot of in, you know information. Usually, when someone's leaving a comment, it's usually a helpful piece of advice that they're that they're leaving. Uh, well, at least you hope it is, but a lot of the times it is. And so, uh, go check those out again. Linking to everything on episode 32 of uh, the Prepper Website Podcast.com. So again, that's it for this episode. Uh, if you get a chance, come by the website and leave me a comment in episode 32 or hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, I'd love to uh, hear from you and, and I'd like to hear you know what you think about the podcast and you know what what you like about it, what things you know what you don't like about it. Um, you know and that's just you know interesting to me and gives me a little bit of feedback. Uh, let me know, you know, how how I'm doing on on this podcast. Episode 32, and we're, we're kind of putting these out. I'm really enjoying it. I look forward to doing it every every evening to get get it ready for the next morning. So, you know, a little bit of feedback is great. So uh, until tomorrow, when you know, well, let me say this: if you are looking for more preparedness information, don't forget to stop by PrepperWebsite.com. We have tons of information there, tons of articles that we that we link to. And then we also have pages like Frugal Living, DIY, Alternate uh, News. Uh, we had just, you know, a lot of great stuff out there uh, for you. So uh, if you're looking for more preparedness information, go go uh, make sure you hit PrepperWebsite.com. So until tomorrow, we'll, we'll, we will have uh, another great episode for you. Stay prepped and aware.